Hello, this is Dan Chagru, and welcome to the More Art Than Science podcast, where I explore the relationship between music and commerce by talking to musicians, mostly guitarists, about how they got their start and how they make ends meet. Though he was not born here in Boston, I think of my next guest, Aaron Larger Kaplan, as a Boston-based guitarist. He did most of his formal guitar training here at the New England Conservatory, and I first saw him play at a group muse in Boston. Aaron played that night with grace and ease, and the few times I've met him since, my impression was that the personality matched the playing style. Aaron was noted for his, quote, astounding technical proficiency and artistic delicacy, end of quote, by the Boston musical intelligencer. Though I know him as a Boston guy, he's performed solo and chamber music in Spain, in Italy, including a debut at the young age of 16, in Russia, Taiwan, and across the United States. He's also premiered over 80 solo and chamber compositions. He has soloed with orchestras, he's directed concert series, created commissioning endeavors, and brought classical music into schools and communities. In 2019, Aaron received a medal from the Society of Arts and Letters of Paris for his trailblazing work in music. On with the interview. So welcome, Aaron Larger Kaplan, to the More Art Than Science podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming. So I'd love to start up. I hear that you're a Zeppelin and a Vi fan. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> Let's start there. As young Aaron is listening to, uh, you know, what was the, some of the early rock you were into? Um, so, well, how did you get into those well, guys? Before I played classical guitar, I actually played electric guitar because, like I think every guitar player, I wanted to be a rock star. Nice. Um, and so I think the, you know, Led Zeppelin was huge to me, especially Led Zeppelin three. Okay. The acoustic album was just mind-blowing. I was nice. like, what? Um, Hendrix unbelievable i remember i learned little wing the intro to little wing and uh, went guitar. into a friend's basement where all, they were they were doing stuff they weren't supposed to be doing in that basement <laughs> and i played that and this kid looked at me and he goes what that's awesome <laughs> it was awesome it was yeah. fun it's beautiful it's beautiful music yeah it is um and who else vi oh yeah i i still um, think about Vi when I'm doing, I'm outside, I have little licks in my head, but he played a seven string and yeah. you know, that just yeah, kind of made it off limits to me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's a virtuoso that, yes, yeah, so it's in some ways unapproachable. Um, <laughs> yes. But so, okay. So you started out on electric and how old were you when you started playing? Um, I think I was, I got my first electric when I was about 11 years old. It was a black washburn. It just had to have a whammy bar because whammy bars are created by gods for right. us mortals. And then um, I heard a video of Segovia in my uh, high school Spanish class, oh, the cool. end of my sophomore year. And I said, oh, and he was, he played Asturias. And I was like, that's the Doors, <laughs> who were my like favorite band at the time, of course. Yeah. And so I went home and I looked up who this old guy was. This is pre-internet people. And I searched out music and started playing it, or trying to play Asturias. Yeah. I put my pick in between my pinky and my third finger. Nice. And I quickly realized I didn't know how to play. Yeah. And then um, 
I said I wanted to find a teacher. And yep. I said it was either going to be classical piano or guitar. And I was too old for piano. I kind of knew that. As what? You were 11? I, no, I was no, 16, 16 at this point. 16, okay, yeah, yeah. And I said, okay. And I didn't know anyone who played classical guitar. So that means no one plays it because a 16-year-old, the world revolves around 16-year-olds. <laughs> and you were where as a 16-year-old? I was in Denver you or Englewood, Colorado. Okay. Uh, in the suburbs. And so not a classical guitar teacher to be found. No, I found yeah. out later when I moved to Boston that Ricardo Isnaiola was in Denver. And he's wow. a wonderful teacher, wonderful man. Um, but I didn't meet him until I had already actually moved to Boston. Oh, okay. So you moved? did you move to Boston for school? Yes. Oh, okay. I went to Boston University for one year. I was in their uh, music program. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember I took a summer um, festival at the Bowdoin Summer Music Festival with David Leisner. And I went and auditioned at the New England Conservatory for the festival. Uh, and he liked my playing. And I said, well, I was thinking of transferring. And it was audition week, just happened to be. And so I went and filled out an application. And the next year, that next fall, I started at the New England Conservatory, where I completed my degree. Awesome. So had, had you heard of the New England Conservatory when you applied to BU? No. Okay. Well, not not individually like the conservatory, New England Conservatory, um, but I had looked into um, schools, but I'd only been playing classical music, including reading, for about a year and a half. Oh, wow. And so yeah. uh, I, I felt a conservatory was above my abilities. Mm -hmm. um, and at BU, the music program is very strong. Mm -hmm. They just didn't know they had a guitar program. So I was the only non-education major who played guitar and I, you know, learned to read music, solfege, conduct, all that. Wait, so, so wait, you said they didn't know that they had a guitar program? What is it? <laughs> so wait. they accepted me into the program. Yeah. And I went to my first, uh, like, theory placement audition, sight reading audition. Uh -huh. And I had to, with one of the theory teachers, and he sat there very you know, towering over me and said, so what instrument do you play? And I said, guitar. And he looked at me and goes, we don't offer guitar. Oh boy. And I, I felt about the size of my pinky toe uh -huh. and said, yes, you do. <laughs> and he turned out to be a wonderful teacher, but that, so what, I joked. What was his instrument? Of he was a pianist okay. and a composer. And I, I've tried to since convince him to write for guitar and he's be, he, his knee jerk reaction is, oh my God, that's too hard of an instrument to write for. And <laughs> So, well, to each harder, his own. Yeah, it is harder than piano, for sure. I'll, I'll take that. It has its own issues. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. So, so, I'm sorry. So, you were aware of NEC, but you went to BU because you didn't think you had the chops right. to be a classical musician. All right. Right. And which actually leads me to, so your, your family, you know, mom and dad, what was their relationship to all this music? I mean, are they, do they care? Do they, are they like... Oh, they, you, they definitely cared in the beginning. Um, I don't think they expected me to be uh, a music major or a professional musician. I know when I told my dad and stepmom that I'm going to the New England Conservatory, there was a, a bit of a silence that was not expected, and I didn't really ask permission. Um, and the were one, they were they funding you? Not really, and okay. so, so you didn't really they were emotionally supportive to a certain yeah. extent. Okay. But that was about it. Okay. And um, so I didn't really need their permission. Yeah. Um, but I guess 
when I started doing well, when I was hired by the Boston Conservatory to join their faculty, uh, and then later University of Massachusetts, Boston, where I'm currently, mm-hmm. um, it definitely warmed up uh, to it because <laughs> oh all of it. But okay. my, my family doesn't come from a, a musical background. Sure, so, yeah. um, and that's not an insult. It's just the oh, reality. No. They didn't know yeah, the yeah. business. And so when they see that others in the business are appreciating what I do, um, it's been much easier to, yeah. to get them online and no. uh, not online, but on board. Right, right, yeah. Were, it, are, were they the type of parents who were, you know, career oriented, or was it like what was that? What was the emphasis on in your household? I mean, what was did they, they you know, what what hopes and dreams had they imposed upon you, if any? Um, oh man, that's a good question. The I'm the youngest of four. Okay. And um, I think by the time it was my turn. Um, they were kind of like, whatever you want to do, okay, go right. do. Yeah. Um, right. I, I know with my mom, it was very much be a good person and oh, cool. decent human being. There you go. Um, and I think I've, I've, I've tried to do that. To well, the extent. listeners will be the judge of that. Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. That will come out over the course of the next 25 minutes. Yes. No, no, no that's, that's beautiful. So, so, so for your mom, it was not like, you know, you have to be a doctor or a lawyer or you have right. to be a concert pianist or whatever. It's you be a good person. Right. And my, my dad was a pediatrician, um, and I saw that life up close, and it wasn't something I really wanted to do. Um, it, it was a struggle, meaning? Or no, it it, I, my dad worked a lot um, in... in you know, I think as anyone who owns his own business, especially in a very changing uh, field like uh, the healthcare is, um, you know, he, he was at the office all the time. And I'd go on rounds with him in the morning. I got to meet patients. I got to see procedures. I mean, I, I saw some really cool things that were very inspiring. Um, but I, I kind of decided early on if I was going to give 60 to 80 hours a week to a career, um, it, whether it be in the medical field or law field, um, I'd rather do it for music um, mm-hmm. and do it for myself, kind of on my own terms. Because um, I know I could be a lawyer. I could have done many things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I had to decide what I wanted to do with my time and my energy. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so the six, this is an interesting topic for me. So, you know, you're, cause, so I assume when you say 60 hour to 80 hours a week, that's, you know, for Aaron today, this, that's essentially what you're putting in to oh. between teaching, uh, so, professor, professorship, right. teaching, practicing, performing. Yeah, so it, there's a, I try 25 uh, hours a week of practice. Okay. Um, that's, that's on the guitar. Yeah. Um, and then I usually teach depending on the semester, uh, between the university and my private studio. These are often adults who come to me. Um, I usually teach about 14 to 18 okay. hours so a week, depending on the 42 week. Total, yep. And then administrative, <laughs> all these, uh, young people are asking how do I make it? How do I make it? Oh yeah. And it's. You know, yeah. writing skills and communication skills are paramount. Okay. And so I, I easily spend three to five hours a day on the computer. 
and that being so up to 69, 68 yeah. hours now. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah, and that yeah. can be advertising, that can be social media, that is talking with composers, um, that is writing press releases, um, making sure websites are up and um, current. Um, yeah, and then there's other administrative stuff that is I don't even think about, which is balancing checkbooks, um, taking care of a house, um, and those type of elements. And sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. I can say going on tour is kind of great because there's a bunch of stuff I don't have to worry about. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. not at home where I can sit in front of my computer for six hours. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's sort of almost like a break. I, I could, I can relate. Um, Okay, so yeah, so you're choosing a, a, a career where you're working 60 to 80 hours, and uh, actually, and I'm glad to hear that you've got, the students that you have now are asking you, hey, how do I make it, yeah. right? So, so and that these, you're talking now about the UMass students? Um, UMass students, as well as, um, yeah, some private and other, you know, I get emails and calls from young um, musicians, not just guitarists, oh. but people who know me on social media, um, who are, who see what I've been doing with publishing and with, um, the different projects and say, so what's going on? Or they read an article about me Yeah, and, you know, I, I try and, um, be the person that I didn't have, cool. uh, to a certain extent. Um, I know what it is to get ghosted <laughs> And so, um, and I, I don't believe in the kind of savage um, competition that exists in our music field. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're fighting over scraps. We have this amazing product. I mean, music, unbelievable product, especially classical music. Wow. And we fight about who gets the one set of ears, but there's seven billion people. Nice, I love That's it. That's a yeah. lot of ears. And yeah. I, I personally think if you play beautifully or X, Y, or Z plays beautifully and inspires an audience member to go to another concert or buy another recording, then they that's wonderful. But if someone's boring, and this is my only rule, is you cannot be boring. <laughs> I Seriously, I still, yeah, yeah. I had an... Uh, couple of people in the last couple of years, um, you know, promoters uh, at venue or venue hosts who, you know, told me, I love classical guitar. I enjoy the first piece. I sleep through the concert and I wake up for the encore. And he said it with complete seriousness. Mm -hmm. And it was a job to convince him that that experience that he had, you know, 20 years ago <laughs> may not yeah, yeah. happen today. Well, I got—I don't, I don't know if I should admit this on a guitar podcast, but the last time I saw David Russell, <laughs> I cannot I comment on that. I, I, please don't. But I—I've I, I, got nothing to lose here. I mean, it's—he's awesome. I mean, he, he. But like, there's a there's a point at which flawless becomes not exciting, and and you know, it 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 was beautiful, um, you know, I. But like, I I just was not moved and and I literally you know I'd had a long week I was fighting to uh, yeah. to stay awake so well, our job as musicians is to elicit emotion <laughs> and even if that emotion is I can't stand how he just did it at least it's an emotion right but yeah. no emotion or um, this type of I think guitarists tend to play for each other too much mm -hmm. and we go oh that's so hard oh look what he did I can't do that on my right, piece right. 
rather than playing for musicians yeah. or hopefully the general public. And the general public, man, or kids, go play for kids. If you're boring, they tell you. Yeah. And I think everyone should have to, you know, be a waiter, work in retail, and play for kids. Yeah, yeah. And if you can't make that, so I'm a, I'm, I am an amateur. I we're, we're sitting up here with, in my attic with my, um, with my Cordoba. Yes. Um, and I have played for kids, uh, and I will tell you that, um, you know, I'm, I'm a, essentially more or less an intermediate guitarist, and so, but I want to um, get out in front of people, and so I subjected my son's second grade class to a couple classical pieces, and, you know, they, they were polite, which is to, uh, to their teacher's credit, not mine. Um, and then I, I moved from, you know, they, they were quiet, they listened, but I could tell they, they just really couldn't have cared less. I, I moved from there to, uh, to Good Lovin', and, and they all got up and started dancing, yeah. and it, it was fun as hell. And um, that's that I, one of my first jobs after graduating from uh, New England Conservatory was Young Audiences of Massachusetts, and I created a program called The Spirit of Spain. It's an educational and entertaining program, talks about... Uh, colonialism, language, uh, influence, and it just uses the guitar as the the guide. And yeah. I, I'm doing a, uh, classes at 8 a.m. and having to keep these kids' attention. You know, it reminded me of Pete Seeger and his wonderful live in Carnegie Hall concert. And I heard that in college. Mm. And I remember listening, and he's singing a song, and you can tell he lost the kids. And on a, you know, one beat, changed the song <laughs> and got all the kids back in. Nice. Now, I don't do sing-alongs. Sure. So I yeah. had to figure out how to um, adjust. And there are many times that I would shorten a piece, lengthen a piece, uh, change the order. I mean, it really, that taught me a lot about performance, yeah. which is a different art than playing guitar. So some I'm I'm hearing echoes and you your main teacher was Elliot Fisk I would assume no actually no, okay. my main teacher was David Leisner oh okay and my last year of the conservatory I studied um, with both David and Elliot oh okay I sat in on a lot of Elliot's lessons and uh, was going to be his assistant for a semester um, and on the outside I also took flamenco lessons and so oh, wow. uh, my final year was. A uh, bit hectic, I guess you could say. Yeah, but so because I, I was I was imagining that I was hearing echoes of Elliot Fisk when and when you're talking about you know make sure that you're entertaining and you know because that seems oh, he gets seems that like, yeah, he 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 is definitely a performer yeah um and I I wouldn't say he didn't influence me I mean sure. the guitar and friends I got a group of guitarists from the conservatory to go perform in Roxbury and that was really one of the first concerts probably my third concert I'd ever organized. And yeah. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah. And I since uh, have started multiple concert series, um, directed and looked at what is the place of music in society. I love the conservatory. I love Symphony Hall. But most of um, Boston doesn't know about Symphony Hall or care that New England Conservatory has free concerts every night. And so yeah, how right. do you get the music outside of the conservatory? Yep. And that's... Well, I've seen you play at Group Muses, so that's, yeah, that's one that's way. Yeah, that's one. I, I, yeah. And Group Muses was very interesting because uh, that started after I had started a house concert series uh, called Greater Boston House Concerts. And with the intent of taking music of the conservatory or the symphony hall and bringing it into communities that yep. 
aren't going in. And so living in Dorchester, I hosted uh, probably 25 concerts in about four years. Nice. And we had Symphony Hall musicians, Carnegie Hall players from Europe, um, and we had local and it was that, and, and poets and artists come in, and with that intent of bringing it into the community. So how, well, how did the economics of that work? Because symphony hall musicians, I would imagine, I mean, they've, they've got their, you know, their, their paycheck that they, right. they're living on, at least. I mean, right. it's not a tremendous amount of money, but they don't have to busk, obviously. Right. So they're playing in your house. Are, are they, is that like a... Uh, the basics of that was uh, ticket sales. They got 70% of the ticket sales. Okay. Um, I had to cover my costs, which was sure. insurance um, and the um, the reception, basically, and a little bit of press. But I very much used social media um, and would video and, and uh, give an opportunity. Not every musician was on board with it, and they didn't come, and other ones did. I actually still get inquiries, but mainly from non-classical musicians. Classical musicians are an interesting lot. Well, is it, I'm, I'm learning that there is, you know, the, the concept of getting a percentage of the ticket sales mm -hmm. seems to largely just not exist in classical. Like, you know. It really depends on the venue. Yeah. Um, you know, ideal, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of it because it's not of guaranteed of, of, of a getting percentage, a percentage of the door. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I would prefer well, a guarantee. Who, <laughs> who wouldn't? Right. 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 But, um, but the, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but, yeah. but the thing that it, the, 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 uh, the, the formula that it changes if you're not dependent on ticket sales is, is whether or not you're cultivating an audience or, or even trying to drive an audience to come to your gigs. I've right. talked to guitarists who say like, you know, I'm going to get my fee whether or not this, you know, people show up. Right. And, um, yeah. And that's actually, I had a few musicians who really didn't, they felt, okay, I don't have to do any press. I don't have to invite yeah. people. And they never got invited back. Um, because we're all in this together. And I, I tried to make that very clear. Um, especially now with social media. Yeah. Um, and we're competing. I mean, you can say all you want. I don't want to be a part of the business. I'm just in this for the art. But any business, if they said, hey, I'm a shoe salesman and I'm not going to you know, uh, uh, try and get people to buy my shoes, you'd be a failed business. Yep. Um, we live in a society, society that uses money. Um, <laughs> and until <laughs> banks decide that I don't have to pay my mortgage and car loan or pay for gas... I, I, I have to really wonder, and maybe, you know, there's multiple ways that one could have a career in music. Yeah. Um, one, maybe you come from a wealthy family. Uh, maybe you have a benefactor, non-familial. Uh, maybe you get sponsorship from a major company, um, or you have to do it on your own. And all of them, I think, are valid in sure. that they are happening. Yeah. You can, if you're doing it on your own, being angry about someone who has uh, access to funds or doesn't need to make a living doesn't help. And so the reality is that it's not a level playing field. Mm -hmm. If you can pay to be on the cover of a magazine and that leads to or, uh, a concerto, which then leads to something else, you know, that's the reality. And that's how it's always existed. And in a sense, to, to say that it's purely based on merit, 
I, I think it's very naive. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I, I've, I've got a few questions that are like build, building mm -hmm. up here. So coming, circling back a little bit to uh, you coming out of school, you mentioned after you got to NEC or, or maybe it was right after you graduated, you were able to land a professorship no. at uh, Boston Conservatory? No. Or, no? Um, so my first job, I graduated from conservatory and I worked behind the counter at, um, uh, what's the market in Cambridge? Um, H Market? Pemberton. Pemberton oh, oh, Market okay. on Mass Ave. Yeah, yeah. I did that for six months. Okay. And I learned very quickly that eight dollars an hour, at <laughs> on your feet for six to eight hours a day. Yeah. Or more. Um, and I, I doubt he's a listener, but I got to say the manager of Pemberton, if it's the same one, is not a particularly nice dude. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I anyway. won't say anything. <laughs> but I learned something very, very well. Um, about that same time, I had started, I got a job teaching at uh, the Community Music Center of Boston, uh, Community Music School. So I was teaching on Saturdays, okay. uh, little kids nice. and through adults. And um, I was like, okay, that's a pretty cool job. You know, it was like 25 an hour. And I was still doing this other job. And I, after six months, I said, God, I hate this. I don't want to do ever do anything that's not related. Yeah, Pemberton. Yeah. Uh, not related to music. Yeah. And so I asked for more hours um, and I quit the job at Pemberton. And I, I do tell this to all my students. I said, do something you despise. <laughs> Don't do a job that's comfortable. Well, wh because when you graduated from NEC, did you try for other stuff that was music related and no, it just wasn't there? I mean, I, I was hired by uh, Community Music Center within a few months of graduating because they saw me in a concert and yeah. said, would you come and teach here? And then I got hired by Young Audiences of Massachusetts within a few months after that. Okay. And I was making a living. Yeah. I, and Does NEC offer like, a, you know, here's what the real world is like type, let's call it entrepreneurship classes, like, hey, you know, yeah. if you can either be a professor, like, I mean, they're giving no. performing arts degrees, right? Do they teach you like how to... So I got my undergraduate degree there and I did have to take a music, I don't know what they called it, I think it was music business, or but I, I think that's too good of a name. I, I don't I think they want it, they don't want the word business in anything. Really, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, and now they have this entrepreneurial musician, which didn't exist at the time. Okay. But I was doing gigs. They had a gig office. I was playing weddings and corporate gigs all the time. Okay. Um, I bought an amplifier and I used to, you know, use the T or borrow a car um, and go to gigs whatever I, whenever I could. Okay. And so I had some money coming in. Yep. And then and actually through the gigs, I met some of my longest fans, you know, nice. people who yeah, had yeah. since come to concerts. But uh, at the time, Angela Beeching was there, who has since written a beautiful book called Beyond Talent um, that I think many, many uh, in musicians should read. And it talks about writing press releases, bios, what is, how does one distribute? Um, it's not for the faint of heart. I mean, it would be wonderful the, if I the could... Book or the book? No, the, 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 the business. The business, okay, yeah. Um, but it's a business. And yeah, one yeah, can yeah. learn... I had no idea what academia was like until I joined academia. And there's a whole bunch of a aspects of academia I despise. Uh, among the, the um, students that you were with in that class that graduated with, uh, I guess, David Leisner, I mean, mm -hmm. what, how, how many students are we talking about? Like, 
There were I, there were only, I mean, there were only a f- very few undergraduates at the time. Okay. Uh, with David, meaning Weisner. like five or like oh, like three. Really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, most you, of his students were graduate level students, okay. and they would probably at the time another five. So I'd say he had eight to ten students, um, and then okay. Elliot also had. Um, a big group, and then David is now full time at Manhattan. He doesn't go back and forth right okay. uh, to Boston anymore. It, it has the um, undergrad program grown since then? Is it more? Is it more like five or ten? Or I, I can't say. Know, okay, I, I really have nothing to do with the school. That's fine. Yeah, no, yeah. that's fine. So uh, the other, I imagine. Do you know where the other two ended up that were undergrad? Did they go to um, masters? I I know one student still plays music. Uh, he doesn't do classical. Um, him and his wife are both musicians, but it's like a side gig. They have regular, uh, they have two kids, and okay. he's got a nine to five job, which gotcha. is great, okay. and he still plays. Yeah. Um, I know another one is teaching and has started a small school. So music school. Yeah. Cool. Um, but I, I, I had an interesting conversation with a, one of them in, when we were both kind of seniors mm-hmm. and he said are you going to go get a master's and I said well I, I guess and he goes in what and I said performance and he goes but do you see any of the master's students performing and they would play That's once or twice a year I was ask you, once yeah. or twice a semester basically yeah and I said you know you're right and so I took a semester I my plan was to take a year off mm-hmm. and perform yeah. and figure out what I wanted to do and I met um, Dmitry Goryachev, which is uh, Grisha Goryachev, the great uh, flamenco guitarist. Yeah. He was a student at the conservatory at the same time. And I met his father, Dima, uh-huh. and I started studying with him. Cool. And yeah. so I decided to commit to his schooling, uh, his way of teaching. Um, uh, privately, you mean? Privately. Okay. You know, yeah. third floor of a triple-decker in Dorchester. Okay. And... I was at his house for three to seven hours a week, every week. Nice, yeah. And so yeah. I would base all of my teaching kind of around when I, I would be at his house. And he, I, without hesitation, was my main uh, teacher, even though it happened after conservatory. Yeah. I couldn't really do what uh, Elliot and David had you know, tried to teach me because I had to learn how to play. I had a lot of physical ailments from playing sports in high school. Oh, and yeah. damaged my shoulder. And my wife does body work. Oh. And I met her because I had a damaged shoulder and was ready to kind of throw in the towel. And she says, I could fix you. And oh, cool. I was like, cool. And then I asked her on a date and she said no. And I had to kind of convince her okay. to, uh, you know, take a risk with me. I don't know if it's paid off. We've been together for a while. So, so I think she so likes So Coldplay me. was not played at your wedding? Or like, I, I won't try to fix you? No. <laughs> Because she actually says she will fix you, and she did. Yeah, it took time. (laughs) I had a lot of uh, health issues from the time I was a teenager. And um, I met her probably 22, 21, 22 years old. So I had to really put a big change in my life, both in the diet, my uh, mental... Uh, focus, changing. I mean, what we do on the guitar is not natural. Yeah, right. Holding your arms the way we do. Yeah. Sitting for, I mean, I go oh, on the, the practice bench to my computer. I mean, I'm yeah, sitting probably ten hours a day. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's just not good. And so and she then teaches. Just repetitive movement oh, in your yeah. fingers. Yeah. And she taught me how to uh, basically practice and take care of myself awesome. through uh, basic exercises and uh, get stronger. 
So I'm going, I'm yeah, circling back going. again, back to the, the tickets, the, um, the house concerts mm -hmm. and the ticket sales. You're giving 70% to the musicians. How, what, uh, how much are you charging for tickets? What, for, what year is this? How much are you charging for tickets uh, and how many people are coming? Rough, very roughly. 2010 yeah. to 2014 was Greater Boston House Concerts. Okay. And, so, and then what was it like? Two, about the same time the group, group music started, yeah. what, 2013? I think 12 or 13. 12, yeah, okay. Yeah. Anyways, um, yeah. And he was a New England Conservatory graduate, I think. The group music dude? Yeah. 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 Um, and I, I still like them. I think it's actually very interesting and they've done yeah. some really cool things to spread out. Out. I, I have questions about some of the um, legality of some of the, like <laughs> making sure composers get their royalties and oh, all that. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm but that's, I, that's I no messy. Idea what's there. Yeah. That's messy for everyone. Right. And only because I had questions about it when I was doing it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We charge anywhere from 20 to 25 a concert. I wanted my neighbors to be able to come. Yeah. Um, I found that if I charge too little, People wouldn't come because there's no value to it. Nice. Okay. Um, and some people I would offer free tickets to, and they, they just still never show up. So I got a lot of complaints. You need to lessen your ticket price, but then those same people wouldn't show up. Yeah. Um, well, I have to admit, I've signed up for many a group muse show, paid mm -hmm. the three bucks, and completely forgotten that I, you know, yeah. had the ticket. We all do. And actually, yeah. I started doing. Um, pre-sales online because we had people who wouldn't show up. And I'm like, wait a sec, I just invested yeah. in a reception. I told the musician, and we were getting anywhere from 25 to 45, 50 people a concert. Um, okay. But I mean, if, you, if I did a concert and it was during the playoffs of football or <laughs> baseball, you wouldn't know. So if I did pre-sales and there's no refunds and I still yeah. abide by that, um, you're, you're saying something that's it's like on the the, uh, the next podcast that comes out. So we're this will come out in November mm -hmm. first. The next one that comes out is the exact same uh, business model, which is, and this is a uh, a woman who uh, retired from banking, so I think knew her stuff on the money side, mm -hmm. and the exact same model. Like got a pre, you got to sell yeah. in advance. Only used Excel. I mean, the thing is, like, you, you know, it, I actually I use ticket sellers, brown paper tickets. I've done. Um, there's a there's a couple of other companies. I'm going to Oregon um, in mid October, and I set up pre-sales for two of the concerts. Uh, one's a house concert, and if someone buys a ticket and doesn't show up, I'm, I'm really sorry. Oh sure, you no, know, no, but yeah. you know, unless it's, well, it's not, you don't get a refund if you don't go to a baseball game. I right. mean, that, that's a that's a pretty accepted model. Sure. Yeah, yeah, and you know, this is how I make my living. Yeah, absolutely. No, I. Yeah, I do you, the you same. You seem one. guilty about it, but there's like no, no you, you, there's no reason to be. <laughs> okay, <to> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you sell a ticket. It's you know, you sell a ticket. Um, but but that those are great numbers. And 20, 20 to twenty five bucks, two thousand ten, you know, what, this is five years ago. Twenty five to forty five people coming. I mean, mm -hmm. that those are big numbers. I mean, I've been to group music shows where four people show up. Yes, and uh, what the goal of Greater Boston House Concerts was actually. Someone would come uh, to Dorchester on Saturday, and then they'd go to a different town, maybe Newton, maybe Framingham, on oh, Friday and Sunday. So it would become a weekend of concerts. Gotcha. And I did that a couple of times. The, the difficulty was finding hosts who could be counted upon to follow through. Yeah. And I, I, you know, the problem with people is people. And <laughs> that's... Right. So we only got to do that a few times, but... It was an insane amount of work, and my wife and her sister, who, who lives with us, 
Um, you know, we have an old house in Dorchester. It's perfect for it. But preparing the house, making sure everything was there, at the end of the night, I wasn't walking away with, with more than $40, $50. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I would wake up at 2 in the morning. Oh, I forgot to do this. I forgot to do that. I have to do this. In part because I know exactly what it is to play a concert for four people. Um, I know what it is to travel and be like, okay, I'm dependent on the ticket sales. Let's hope no one dropped the ball. Yeah, yeah. How big? I, I'm just curious because Dor- I mean I know Dorchester. I know the triple. It's a triple decker. No, 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 no. Oh, it's an old Victorian. Oh, okay. 1885 historic Victorian. It's quite lovely. <laughs> so how how big is the room in which your host you were? Or are we we could hold conference? 50 people, wow. and so it was. You know, we'd open the, you know, we had sliding doors and we'd yep. open those up. We had a bunch of chairs. Cool. Um, and it was, it was really great. We had. Did you com- rent chairs? Just curious. I'm just no, my, my, my wife has an obsession with chairs. <laughs> and so okay. we had uh, a lot of chairs. We had a few folding chairs, but most of them are, you know, older wood chairs. And cool. uh, we really tried to make it an experience because, yeah. I mean, I love musicians, but there's, we have multiple senses. And that be eyes and yep. nose and and you know when I would go play at a venue and the the stage area would be dirty or there'd be a mildew smell in the backstage, I just sat there. I'm like you know, and my wife and I came upon the, the house concerts idea because I would try and rent spaces. Yeah. And dropping five hundred dollars, which is cheap in Boston, right, to rent right. a, a nice space. Um, you know, there's a point where it's like, that's a big risk to host other people. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. But I've since, I started a new series called Now Music, cool. and I am renting a space. Um, Where's that? That, well, so far it's been, it's, it debuted in April of 2019, um, and we did it at Arlington Street Church in their chapel, which oh, is nice. gorgeous. Um, and what's wonderful about it is, I don't have to prepare the space. They're clean. Yeah. They don't charge me too much. I can trade sometimes. Um, but often... Trade t- what? Sometimes I'll come play for a service or oh, cool. okay. do something along those lines. Yeah. Um, but at least it's nice to have a professional space where people can come together. And that holds 75, 85 people. And um, venue. Uh, some of the people who review concerts for different blogs or newspapers can come. There's a, kind of a, a thing against going to a house concert to review. They, they won't do private Oh, events. really? Yeah. Okay. And you have to be very careful with house concerts. I mean, as oh. a host, I had to get special insurance. I had to uh, really make sure yeah. that I wasn't going to get sued and lose my house type of thing. Now, we, we, can't, we can edit this question if we have to later. Um, did you, when you talk about insurance, are you talking because of like, the fact that you were offering alcohol or no? No. Right. Um, it was BYOB. Okay. Because I couldn't offer alcohol. Okay, but you... Uh, they could bring their own, but okay. and they, I could supply a glass, but I could not offer. And that's purely based on... I talked to my insurance agent, and I think it was 200 a year to host the concerts, you know, to get a business coverage. Like unlimited? Yeah. Okay. And then, well, that's I right. think I gave him a number, you know, eight to uh, 10 a year. Okay. Um, but... And he said, are you going to offer alcohol? And I said, no, it wasn't the plan, but how much more would it be? And he's like, oh, at least triple. (laughs) And there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes into play when that happens. Right, right. 
Oh, then now we have to the whole question of the internet. Uh, I'm sorry, the internet, the, the cannabis cafes, but we won't. That, that's an that. easy question. No, <laughs> <laughs> not in my house. Right, no. well, there's only 12 licenses have been awarded so far. So uh, yeah, it's uh, a totally different, uh, <laughs> a totally different line. <laughs> I need as many brain cells as I can. Yeah, right. Get to play what I want to play. I know. So you know, smoke away everyone else, but I'm going to keep playing. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose it's a further testament to just how good Jimi Hendrix was that he was able to play with. <laughs> the number uh, he, of all, he was also amplified, and I know, you know, yeah, yeah. Well. And he had an amazing band. No, he was a genius, <laughs> a genius, and I have utmost respect. I do wish that you know he hadn't delved into the drugs because to see well, what he, he could have done if he had dealt with the demons he had, you know. But read his schedule. You see what his uh, touring schedule was the last couple of years of his life unbelievable yeah. what he was doing just the physical output wow yeah yeah okay cool so so you're oh so i wanted to ask about how did you eventually get to boston conservatory wow. okay so i um was teaching at uh the new school of music in cambridge another community music school i was performing quite a bit i had recorded a couple discs i had started my new lullaby project um and um i was at Let's see. I had done master classes at the Boston Conservatory when I was a student um, at New England Conservatory. They would bring Meaning you had taken them. Okay, I yeah. had taken them as a student, mm -hmm. and um, so I, you know, I always knew about the school. Sure. Didn't know much about the program, and I got a call. You know, it was one of those weird things. I got a call saying, "Would I like to interview for the position?" And apparently, they were. Uh, restarting the program they had the program had kind of fizzled away and they wanted to jumpstart it again interview and hire one or two teachers to really rebuild it do a whole new academic but plan. They, they came to you that's, i got a call that's huge yeah so what to what do you attribute that you know i said well of course when he said they said would you like to interview i said well let me think about it yes and what can i get you and they go well we know all about you just bring an updated CV. And I was, and that right there, I was like, wow, I've succeeded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, um, but how did they know? I have no idea. They never told me how they knew. I mean, I had played pieces of music by some of the composers on the faculty. Okay. So maybe part of the search aspect, someone said, hey, you should contact this guy. Social media is really amazing. It, um, and this was 2009. And I hadn't really been on it for very long, but I don't think anyone had been on it for very long. Yeah. Um, and I had played in Boston for a while. You know, okay. I had basically so sort of known on the scene. I guess when, when yeah. you say you were pl you were playing stuff by uh, Boston Conservatory faculty, were you also because it sounds like you're pretty careful about uh, royalties and publishing rights and all that. Mm -hmm. like, is, were you sending them back money? Oh no! So that? like I would, um, uh, one faculty member, Kevin Siegfried. You know, I played on a recital of his at the conservatory. Oh okay. So he had written me this amazing piece of music, "Tracing a Wheel on Water," which happens to be the title track of my first disc. And um, I premiered it at the Boston Conservatory okay. uh, a few years earlier. So okay. it's not that I had never been there. Right. Um, but so not only had you been there, but you were you were um, soliciting compositions yeah. from the faculty. And, and, I, and I was getting hired to do chamber music. I was, okay. you know, Boston's, uh, there's a lot of composers here. And yeah. uh, Olaf Chris Henriksen, who um, is on faculty there, early music. He's a lute player and multi fretted instruments, I guess you'd say. Um, 
I met him probably when I was still a student and I know that he had seen me play a couple times and we became colleagues and we were there for four, I was there for four years and then they, uh, right before they merged with Berkeley, they hired a new head of music who just didn't really like guitar. Mm-hmm. And so the people that we had accepted into the program, uh, the ones who didn't need financial aid were denied based on really flimsy reasoning. And then the ones who needed financial aid were given like $1,000. And so in 2014, I got a note saying, we've decided that since you have no students, because they didn't accept any of them, um, we're, we're cutting the guitar program, which had actually been decided about a year earlier, but they hadn't announced that. Mm. And so I was at the University of Massachusetts, which I got a call from a composer, David Patterson, who I had premiered a couple pieces of his, mm-hmm. and he called me up on a Thursday, uh, Tuesday and said, would you like to interview, if you have time, for a position at the university teaching guitar? And I said, sure, when? And he said, Thursday. I said, okay. Mm. And I was, at the time, I remember it very well, I was gigging with the Boston Lyric Opera doing uh, Peter Maxwell Davies' opera, uh, The Lighthouse, which is amazing. And I, my wife picked me up from rehearsal. We drove right over, and I did my interview, and I was hired, and I was started teaching on Tuesday. So in a wow. week, I got a position, and you know. So the, the a, a, a teaching position at Boston Conservatory, and then a teaching position at UMass is that is that the same as like an adjunct professor, or what yeah. is it? Yeah, it's okay. ad, I'm adjunct. So the conservatory is different. They have contracts. You don't get tenure at a oh. conservatory. Oh, okay. They you either get your contract renewed. Often it's three to five years. Hmm. Um, okay. The, um, and then the UMass. The UMass. I'm an adjunct, so I get that, yeah. hired and fired every semester. Oh. Um, it's a semester contract, which is a bit of a frustration. Yeah, but um, yeah. there's just a lot of red tape that comes with that. But yeah. No, when I when I Google adjunct professors, I and try to figure out. Um, the uh, pay for that mm-hmm. it's some somewhere and it's not music but it's right. just adjunct it's like somewhere in the vicinity of and it, it depends obviously on how, how well I guess it depends on how many years you've been there you can tell me um, but it's somewhere in the vicinity of like 20 to 25k per year oh I, I wouldn't even know but per year because <laughs> it depends per, how many students you have so okay. I'm paid by the hour oh wow. um, okay. by the semester I do not get a guarantee um, and adjuncts everywhere are treated very differently, and they should definitely be treated better. Um, I don't get to join a union or have any protections, yeah. um, which is frustrating in this time and day. Yeah. Um, but um, at UMass, it, the, I think the range of pay for an ad, at least for me, it's about 70 an hour, um, I think is what it comes for. Um, I have a friend who teaches at Brown, University, which is you'd think Ivy, and they get forty-five wow. an hour. Um, so less and, at a private school, I guess. Well, it just depends. I guess yeah. it depends on the private school. Yeah. Depends who you are. <clears throat> um, I know, you know, the conservator. If you're at New England Conservatory and you're not known, you're going to get paid a lot less than the famous person who's on faculty who's attracting the students. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so so well, that's. I mean, that's certainly that's livable. Wages. Well, it depends on how many hours you teach. Right. Depends on so how many if you're hours. a clarinet teacher and you have one student, you have to come in, you have to pay for parking, at least at UMass. 
Um, depending where you live, you might be traveling in for that one student and at the end of the day, get paid much less. I know my, my tax rate, because I'm basically self-employed, it's 35 to 40%. And so I, I don't take home nearly right. yeah. what it, it, on paper it can look very nice, but Again, I don't teach 40 hours. How many students do you have, by the way, at UMass? Uh, this semester, I have six. So it's down from what... I usually try to have eight to ten. Yep. Um, two full days of teaching. And, you know, it just depends on the wind. Uh, the students at UMass currently, have to, even majors, have to pay for it extra. It's not covered as part of their scholarship, which is a frustration for all involved. Um, and so, what, if, if, they're, if they're a guitar major, they still pay for lessons yeah, separately from tuition. Yes. Yeah. That's weird. That's, I I, I, that's hard to. I, I, I can't get my head around that. Yeah, <laughs> you and many others. <laughs> so okay. hopefully, maybe yeah. this podcast will fall to the right ears. Um, it's all budgeting. I mean, especially yeah. at a state school. What is included if you're a guitar major at UMass? Well, you have all of your uh, required courses. It's not a performance degree. Um, it's a bachelor's of arts. And so they have all their requirements of theory, piano. They have to do ensembles. Um, oh, so they're, right, okay. It's, it's, a, it's a bachelor of arts in performance. No, no, no. It's a bachelor's of arts in music. And a performance degree, like what I received from the New England Conservatory, required... Um, that one, I had uh, X amount of credits for perform for private lessons, but I also had to perform. I, every semester, every year, I had to play a recital. Um, there was a focus on performance, and so the uh, academics kind of fell by you know were secondary to the instrument. Are all of the kids that you're teaching, the, like the, say the eighth of semester, are they, are they all um, music look, majors? Look, yeah, are no, they all no. music majors? No, I, no. I only have uh, two music majors. Okay, so some of them are just are doing this as a hobby and plan to continue to do it. Some as a people hobby. just have always wanted to play guitar. Other people um, need to graduate and they need a credit, and they're like, hey, I could take guitar and I can. You know, a lot of students at UMass, it's a very interesting school, very different from a conservatory. It's a commuter school for the most part, and so you have a lot of students who are working full time and trying to graduate or get credits to graduate and uh, get a, a higher paying job or training. And so um, the amount of respect that I have for the students who attend UMass is unbelievable because what they, the challenge they have to do uh, is very, very different um, than what most classical musicians are forced to do. Not that there aren't classical musicians who struggle and have to figure out how to balance things out. And to those people, the skills they get, um, they, they probably won't get the, the congratulations they deserve, but it's a huge endeavor to, to commit yourself to music, especially yeah. with, there's no guarantee that you'll get a job or get paid. And Oh, I mean, I, I, there isn't one at NEC, right? I mean, or Juilliard. I mean, it's so, I mean, one of the, uh, Scott Borg in the last month's podcast was saying that of his like cohort of friends, none of them, none, he said, were still doing music. So I can only imagine how much more difficult it would be at a commuter school. Yeah. Um, and, and those two who are music majors, their, their plan or their desire or dream is to make it as a musician. I don't know. You know, I talk about it with them. Um, 
one wants to be a professional musician, work in music. And we have to remember, there's many ways to work in music, whether it be in recording, whether it be being a, a wedding musician, uh, being uh, a professional performer, being a teacher. There, I mean, the, the musicologist theory, there's a ton of areas to work in music or music business. Um, I think the stigma that comes with, oh, well, he's not really playing an instrument, that's a joke. If you're able to play music in some form, in um, hats off to you. Um, and if you once you play guitar, you're a guitarist. I don't care if it's 20 years between practicing, you're a guitarist. It's in you and your soul has been moved. You know, get, uh, hopefully you're not jaded or the world out there yeah. because it's very easy to become jaded. Um, but it's a buttload of work. Yeah. So I'm, I'm cognizant of your time. I have a, a couple other questions. So I, I, oh, good, good. So um, I'm, I'm curious about the, the breakdown, if you would, in terms of, you know, the end of the year, um, the, the amount that, as you said, we live in a world of money. The money that you're making per year, uh, what percentage, roughly speaking, is coming from teaching both um, as an adjunct and privately, and what percentage from, I guess, Everything the other is, yeah, yeah, performing, essentially. Well, right? I mean, so there's there. a very, there's, I have various incomes okay. coming in. Right now, I pre pretty much have three music-related hats. Okay, uh, yeah. Teaching, performing, um, publishing or CDs, miscellaneous, I put those under, because that's relatively new for me. Um, my arrangements of John Cage are published by Edition Peters, which is a huge deal. It's first pieces ever in the John Cage repertoire to be officially published. I'm not the first to do it, but the first to get them published. Cool. And that has been awesome, because it's sold. Um, I don't, I don't make a lot of money off of that yet. Well, yeah, I was, that, that was actually going to be my second question was the, the, the John Cage stuff, um, I've noticed has got some traction on Spotify. Mm -hmm. I know, now I know from other guests, huge amount of money off of Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know I've actually had this corroborated now from two different people that the, uh, amount of money per stream is 0. 0.0008 cents. So yeah. Um, and it depends also if the person's a student and they, they're only paying $5 a month for their, their subscription. Now, maybe it's the same amount of money for Spotify, but the, I, yes, yes, you're right. It pays. Depending pay. on what, what the listener is. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know if they change it based on the listener, but it's pretty much nothing. Um, I actually took my first two self-produced albums off of Spotify when they came out because I thought it was stealing. Um, the label I'm on, Stone Records out of England, they, the mentality, um, uh, and he's the director of it, Mark Stone, does a good job, is wherever there's money, we put it. And so um, I do have my last two albums, Legend of Hagoromo and John Cage Guitar, on Spotify. And it's great to see because that is what people use right now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. to a certain extent. In the US, they still sell CDs in Asia. They still sell CDs or buy CDs in Europe. Cars yeah. in Taiwan, new cars, still have CD players. Mm -hmm. So this change to streaming, oh, people want this, people want that. I actually call BS on that. That's just the latest technology fad that the industry says we should do this, and it's easier to put a USB port in your car than a CD player. I, and I miss my CD player. Yeah. Um, 
I, I, bought, I bought one two years ago when I realized that uh, there was a fair amount of classical guitar stuff that you could only get on yeah. CD. Um, but but uh, yeah. so streaming does play a portion. I do get royalties from uh, Stone Records. Um, there's a minimum I have to hit, but uh, the contract with them is uh, base, and it changes over time. But we've been I've been mm -hmm. with them since 2013, or 15, excuse me. Is it's a 50/50 split of uh, any money that comes in. So be it YouTube or Spotify or CD sales online. Um, Which is what mainly CD Baby or uh, no uh, Amazon. It's because it's a. Um, Amazon. Oh, um, Naxos. Naxos. Yeah. yeah, so Naxos distributes Stone Records okay. stuff. Um, so of the stream, if you think that it's point zero 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 three or whatever it is, eight, yeah. eight um, I get half of that at the end of the day, which is even less. So I don't depend on that income. That's I don't bank on it. Um, but um, so my main income is performing. That's my, I, I would say 60 to 70% of my income is performing. Um, and gigs, I, I still do occasional private gigs, um, being like a wedding gig. Gigs. Oh, you mean, like oh, yeah. a wedding job, oh, yeah, I don't so consider I that a performance. I see, okay. um, background music essentially. Is uh, yeah, I don't do, I only do it a couple times a year, but yeah, that, yeah. Um, I occasionally get corporate gigs, and it might be a performance, but it's not public. So my public performing. So gig is like a closed session. Yeah, that's session kind of for, what I, I say. Okay. Um, Performances open to the public. The yeah. Okay, um, so gigs and performances, about 70% of my income. Um, teaching is probably another you know, 30%. So if we say 60% for performing, 30% for, um, and then 10% miscellaneous you know, CDs, um, streaming, well, CDs I, is streaming. You know, I get a, I get a, a email from CD Baby, and it includes CD sales as well as streaming in one. Um, and then publications. So if I sell uh, uh, John Cage, so I will buy, you know, wholesale the scores of John Cage guitar, and I'll take them with me to concerts. And if people buy them. I made a, a bit of profit. It's not yeah. a lot, and my wife kind of laughs at me because I'm always like, make sure I have the scores when I go on tour. But here and there, you know, it helps pay for gas. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, yeah, I've heard that from several musicians that the C CD sales are, are largely, that that's what you get when you play live. You make whatever, yeah. uh, you know. Well, and some, before yeah. 2006, when that's when Napster came out, so yeah. my first CD on CD Baby came out in 2006. I sold a good chunk of them. Um, and my next CD came out in 2010, um, New Lullaby, and it took a long time to catch up to this initial sales that I had of 2006, Tracing Wheel on Water. Um, and, and that's because the demographic change of listening from CD to digital. And I have friends who tour uh, toured um, individual artists going around booking their own gigs, and they would often sell 100 CDs at a concert. And since now, if they sell 10, yeah, 10 is good. No, 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 I mean, no that's what I've heard. Yeah. yeah, it's like it's like you know, you sell a few CDs so you can have a nice dinner that night. Right, yeah. and it's it ha definitely hasn't made up for the loss. And I and if we look at the business model of Spotify, Pandora, they haven't made money yet. They're in, right. they're, the owners have because of investors, yep. but the business model hasn't made money. Yeah. Um, and so who knows? It, it may not 
actually make money and maybe it'll go down the drain and you're the first person i've interviewed who has made that distinction which is an important one it's like you know you know the, the, the difference between being a millionaire and your company making money yeah. is is a you know so it's either so kudos to you for understanding right. the difference because people you know i mean the the, the other thing and, and actually derek ripper has written about this on his uh, on his social feed is that the other people making money are the people who work at Spotify, right. and they're largely making six figures, you know, doing well coding right. um, or doing you know product management, right. et cetera. Um, and you know that's uh, and some of those people are musicians on the side, right? I would imagine well, one of them. If you look at the go look at the movies that have come out in the last two years, yeah. I would say, and look at all of the bands that used to never allow their music to be in movies, never. Oh, Led right. Zeppelin. Never. I know, School of I know. Rock was the first movie that actually had their music it licensed. Was a big deal, yeah. Huge. Um, the, the Beatles, what is it, the movie Yesterday that came out? Uh, yeah. Whole thing is Beatles. Right. And well, that's Michael Jackson's estate now. Yes. That's, yeah. <laughs> and the reason this is happening is that the income streams have just dried, dried up. Right, right. And so now it's like, oh, I'm on a Spotify playlist, which I'm learning about. And I do know of musicians who are making $100 a month off of streaming, mm -hmm. which when you think of how little you're paid, that's very impressive. Have you me. figured out how to get yourself on a, on a playlist? I have ideas. I haven't really followed up on it. I've talked to a few musicians about it, and I'm hope after this next run of concerts, I have like a two-week break. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping that I will sit down after I catch up with all my yeah, mail and business to, to do some <clears throat> stuff. Because they claim that it's uncrackable. I mean, I've actually, not, not for the podcast, but I've, I've talked to people at Spotify mm -hmm. about this. And, uh, you know, they, they claim that, I mean, there, there are labels who will pay oh, yeah. uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in order to get on a playlist. And, and they're, according to Spotify employee, and it, this wasn't like a spokesperson, right. this was like a, a friend, who said that it, it's not possible. Like they have, they literally have, they've gone, to, labels have gone to the point where they'll put a billboard mm -hmm. outside of the playlist maker's House. home so that they'll see put us that. Wow. Yeah, well, it's not so much put, it's just like be visible, like, you know, have the song there. Um, and and so there, so it's, it's the amount of uh, effort that it takes to resist that influence is uh, in some ways. I don't uh, know. I mean, my, I've talked to a few yeah. people at Spotify or employees off the record. And I've sent notes to um, Spotify on the record, at least on Twitter. Um, you know, there is a way that it could become win-win, win-win. Oh, What's sure. neat about streaming is that publishers get paid as do performers get yeah. paid, which radio, it didn't happen. And radio is not innocent. Look at um, the, listen to classical radio stations, oh, and yeah. they have recordings, uh, except for the big famous, you know, Vladimir Ashkenazi, that type of thing. A lot of the, are these random groups um, out of nowhere or live from our studio. They don't pay royalties mm. for those performances. Hmm. And I've been told, oh, you can be on our station, but we won't allow you to play anything by a living composer. You have to, they have to be older. Um, and Weird. it's, yeah. you know, I get it. There's uh, uh, not enough money, apparently, to go around. Mm -hmm. I disagree. Um, I think that we can all assist each other. It's just the the the, gre the one percenters in the classical music world are doing just fine. Sure. You know, yeah, it's yeah. the the in betweens, and it's it's hard. 
there's competitions. People do competitions until now. I see people in 35 doing competitions. When I was you mean, a, you mean at, 35 at years age old? 35 years yeah. old, and I mean I can't imagine that. I was a student and at 25. I did a competition, and people were like, "Wow, you're old." But now you have DMA programs that people are doing, so they do competitions. Minute, what, what is the accepted uh, peak age? Because I know, if, like for for the NBA star, it's 28. Yeah. I would assume no, no, no seriously for for a guitarist like on what competition. Age? Yeah. Um, well, I think because of the change of focus to DMAs, where which didn't exist when I was a student, you had one or two programs. And now yeah. colleges, another business that yeah, has yeah. had to figure out how to expand their model. Hey, we'll right. offer a DMA to everyone who, who will pay for it. And those students are, they're still students, are then, okay, I'm going to go compete. And they're competing against 18-year-olds or 20-year-olds. And it's like, wait a sec, the GFA has no age limit. So I could go do it, or someone who's 15 could do it. No, they're no, the no age limit. They have is no, there a lower age limit? Yeah, I think it's 18 is the okay. lower age limit, because they have a junior level. But so, so what is, what is your, your, it's an opinion, it's, yeah. it's a little bit subjective. What's the peak age in, physically for someone playing guitar? Well, you know, it's such a gift physically to be able to last. You know, yep. um, what are you looking for musically? I, well, I would I'm prefer. Talking, yeah, I talking. prefer musically. I would love to hear uh, a mature musician who's experienced a bit. Oh, of course, no, no, no. no. I'm not saying. I mean, you know, you, we just the physical people in their 40s and 50s and 60s, 70s even can play beautiful right. pieces. But in, in, from a competition standpoint, oh, competition like peak, standpoint, what's the peak age? I, I personally think if you're over 28 years old probably should stop competing and start focusing yeah. on having a career because repertoire yeah. for competition is completely different than repertoire for yeah, the general it's all public. About bells and whistles it's 15 and, minutes. Yeah. And I often, well, I kind of stopped going to concerts of competition winners because I'm happy for 15 minutes and then I'm completely bored. And I don't need to hear someone show off. For right, an hour. Yeah, I yeah. want again. I want emotions that aren't that have nothing yeah. to do with anger or boringness. Okay. All right. So two two questions to to go out with. So one, what do you listen to um, when you're relaxing, or 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 when you want to like really dig into something awesome, like up, up, up in the last whatever a couple of months? What's on your? Uh... Um, I one I will always stand by live music. I, I would I love seeing live music. I okay. love going and to a live concert, often contemporary music, but I've been to organ recitals, um, I, I early music stuff. Boston, you can go to yeah, four four concerts a day. Mm. Um, the at home, I don't often listen to. I can't work and listen to music. I have a very hard time. Yeah, I would imagine. Um, yeah. But uh, I love uh, the Latin American singer Mercedes Sosa. Um, from Argentina, I love listening to Latin American folk, not folk, but kind of political songs, I guess you'd say, hmm. from Mexico, from Peru. Um, Can you name one? Just a, a Mercedes Sosa is Mercedes Sosa. amazing. Okay. Uh, everyone should go listen to her. Cool. Um, um, Ch uh, Chabuca Grande from Peru, uh, very fascinating. Um, I, I tend to stay away from electronic music. I, I don't like, I grew up listening to rock, but I don't listen to rock really anymore. Yeah, okay. Um, who else? Um, a composer, Tom Flaherty, who just wrote me a piece, who's out of uh, Southern California. He does a lot of music for electronics and guitar. 
or electronics and instruments. And so he just wrote me a piece for electronics and guitar that I'll premiere next year. But his CD, is, he has some music recorded that I just love. Um, and I where, love where choral he plays music. guitar. As no, well, no, no, no. He's a cellist, but it's oh, his cool. compositions. Oh, nice. Um, I love choral music, and so I'll often listen to that. Um, I have a lot of different recordings of Bach, um, and so depending on the day, I'll start the day listening to Bach as I make breakfast, type of thing. Choral stuff, or um, right now it's been keyboard music because that's just trying. That's what you're into? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah organ, choral. harpsichord. Um, uh, Wanda Landowska. I could listen to her constantly when I can handle harpsichord. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, cool. And then the other question is, what would you... So you you have four CDs out? I have what? four solo CDs that, that have come out. Uh, okay. Tracing a Wheel on Water, New Lullaby, which is uh, contemporary uh, imaginations of a lullaby, miniatures, by uh, living composers. And then um, Legend of Hagoromo, which is a Japanese-inspired CD, uh, featuring this 20-minute amazing masterpiece based on the title track, Legend of Hagoromo. Um, and then John Cage Guitar, which came out last fall. Okay, yeah, and John Cage Guitar, that's the one that I noticed on Spotify. It seemed to have picked up some momentum. That's been very cool. It features uh, solo guitar. It features violin guitar with Sharon Leventhal, amazing violinist. And Adam Levin joins me for I a prepared yeah. guitar duo. So we put paper in the strings and clips um, it sounds like early metal, 1944. It's just awesome. <laughs> nice, nice. Friend, yeah, friend of the podcast, Adam Levin. Um, yeah, so that, that one track has gotten, uh, I don't know, it's tens of thousands of streams. Oh, that's good to know. I didn't even know that. Yay! <laughs> so, it would, uh, so I'd love for you to pick one of those to go out on. Oh. From any of those CDs. How long? <laughs> any? Yeah. I mean, um, Well, I, yeah. I think... Um, Bacchanal or Bacchanale is the prepared guitar piece with uh, Adam Levin. Um, it's originally for prepared piano. That one is really amazing. It's a piece written for uh, choreographer Sylvia Fort, who is one of the first African American um, choreographers to really get attention. Um, he was living in uh, Seattle teaching at Cornish College and she asked him for a percussion ensemble piece, but the stage was too small for the battery of percussion. So he took a piano, and, which was on stage, and he started putting clips and paper and weather stripping in the strings and created a percussion instrument. And so I took that in the instructions and had to figure out how do I do this on guitar? And um, it, was, it was so much fun. And that publication will be released later um, in 2019 by Edition Peters as well. So it'll be my third publication. Oh, cool. Okay. But we can get it today on your John Cage CD. Yes. And uh, it, you can stream it on Spotify. But of course. Have, I would assume you would prefer that our listeners I, I prefer that you listen to it however you listen to it. If oh, you feel cool. like buying a CD, they, I am most grateful. <laughs> awesome. All right. Cool. Adam Larger Kaplan, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, Daniel, and I hope to see you uh, again in the near future at a concert. Oh, sounds good to me. Cheers. All right. Cheers. We are about to wrap things up here at the More Art Than Science podcast, but before we do, allow me to beseech you. If you like this podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Doing so helps others find the show, which in turn helps the artists that I interview find more fans which in turn helps fill the world with more and better music. Do your bit!